welcome to another edition of Voter Aid's Wonk and Circumstance podcast. As this year's legislative session starts to wind down and a budget is about to be voted on, we pause to talk about one of the most controversial issues in the news today, sanctuary cities. The state of Florida is debating whether or not to require all cities in the state to follow the same guidelines when they are approaching federal immigration cases. Today, we welcome on two guests, Mario Riza and Chris Sancho Lima, to discuss the topic further and to give their insights on different aspects of what a sanctuary city is and what it means for the concept of federal supremacy. But first, remember that this podcast episode, just like all the others, is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, VoterAid. VoterAid.co is your one-stop shop to understand how the candidates on your local ballot most line up with your viewpoints. Sweetwater, on May 9th, that's just one week from the day this podcast is being released, you have to go to the polls to elect four commission seats. Don't let a local election pass by without your voice being heard. Go to VoterAid.co, that's V-O-T-E-R-A-I-D.co. Take our brief, less than five minute survey, and you will know which of the candidates in all four of the different commission races most line up with your viewpoint. Not in Sweetwater? We're going to have something for you in just a little while. In the meantime, let's dive into today's episode. First up, we'll hear from Mario Ariza. Hi, guys. My name is Mario Ariza. I'm a freelance writer in Miami, Florida. Uh, I cover uh, environmental issues and I also cover uh, a lot of immigration issues. Um, I am also working on a book about sea level rise and uh, Miami. It's called Disposable City, Miami's Doom and How to Avoid It. And uh, I'm also now officially a master's in fine arts. Congratulations. Right? There you go. Welcome to the land of the master's. Mm-hmm. This is Masters number two. I've been in the land of the Masters since I was 23. I, I wish we got green jackets like the golfers do, but whatever. Right? We'll push for that a different time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So the, the main focus of our episode today is uh, on HB 697. Mm-hmm. And that bill is using sanctuary cities, I feel, as a frame issue for mm-hmm. a larger discussion about what constitutional scholars call federal supremacy. But let's start in the, the language of the bill, which is the sanctuary cities, right? Mm-hmm. What, what is your position on the state mandating that all cities in the state of Florida follow the same rules in regards to immigration and federal enforcement? So uh, my position is, is essentially that um, this is a question that should be left to the cities, um, specifically in red states. Um, I, I am of the opinion that local law enforcement, even state-level law enforcement, should not have to carry out uh, the whims or the dictates of federal law enforcement. There is a separation of powers there, and it, it's there for a good reason. In, in legal terms, and I, I will look forward to a lawyer correcting me here if I'm wrong, but the way I understand it, while states are their own independent entities from the federal government, mm-hmm. The cities are technically part of the state in the sense that the state can basically tell a city to do whatever the heck it wants, and the Mm -hmm. city has to sit there and take it. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, what's wrong with a state, regardless of which state it is, 
telling the right. rest, telling all of its cities, you all have to act the same way and live by the same standard. So in, in, in the legal fiction of the question, there is nothing necessarily wrong with a city being told by its state, uh, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Um, the particulars of this matter and, and the spirit in which um, the state of Florida is going after the quote-unquote sanctuary cities, and we should note that there is just one sanctuary city in the state of Florida that supplies to St. Petersburg. Um, really? It, not not any city in South Florida? No. No, no, no. Uh, Mary Jimenez has officially kowtowed in a very Vichy-like move to Trump's uh, sanctuary city uh, policy. Um so, so yes, uh, let's, let's, let's just zoom out for a second and, 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 and say that within the legal fiction of the state having the right to tell the city what to do, that is correct. However, there's, there's a bigger um, order of government here, and that is the federal government. And through the case law, as I understand it, the powers of the federal government over immigration are broad, Right. It's basically However, universally the federal government's job. It's universally the federal government's job. And that is the specific word, okay? If you're going to have local law enforcement enforcing your immigration policy, then what you're essentially doing is you're federalizing local and state-level law enforcement officers to enforce a federal policy, right? Which is the purview of the federal government. Now, you can do that, right? But in order to do that, normally you'd have to invoke posse comitatus and deputize them and say, okay, now you're an agent of the federal government and you're doing this for me right now because it's a state of emergency. Yeah. We're not in a state of emergency. Well, not yet at least. We haven't gone to war with North Korea. <laughs> well, some people argue that the immigration uh, status would go up to a state of emergency because of the 12 million uh, illegal or undocumented immigrants, depending on which side of the aisle you on, which word you use. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 yeah, million. Yes, the 12 million is the number of people in the country that are either undocumented or illegal, uh, depending on your perspective. And that would represent, you know, a decent amount of our population, about, you know, 4%. Mm -hmm. and, and so some people... Like 5.5. Yes, uh, some people, especially uh, people that are in border states... Mm -hmm. uh, and that's another term that is uh, the definition is being fought over. What exactly is a border state? Yes, because if you listen to the federal government, everything within 100 miles of any kind of border, including airports and water, is technically a border and water. So you could be in Colorado, uh, close to the airport, and technically be in a border. Yeah, I, I think like Mimal and uh, the the flyover states are technically the ones that are not on a border. Uh, right. But regardless. So they, a lot of those uh, people in, in border states would argue that this is an emergency, that the, the numbers have increased over the years and that mm -hmm. they're seeing real effects to their communities. Right. So let's ask the question uh, in, in general, because we don't have a representative here of somebody from those quote unquote border states, uh, of what the emergency is. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, the emergency of the 12 million undocumented because no human being is illegal individuals that have come into the states is essentially the emergency of Central America. Mm -hmm. And that is an emergency that was started off uh, through the policies of the Reagan administration in making sure that that region did not, quote unquote, fall to communism. 
The results of that policy have created a situation of acute insecurity for the people who live in these countries. You're seeing not just economic migration, which has been going on for years between Mexico and the United States, but also in the past 10 to 15 years, you've seen literally people showing up at the door and being like, hey, uh, I'm 15 and the Mara Salvatrucha wants me, uh, but I'd rather not become a sicario in a gang, so can you let me into your country, right? Um, and that's uh, specifically the case of the 60 to 70,000 undocumented, unaccompanied minors who've crossed over the border uh, in the past three years. Now, the emergency, right, the language of emergency that Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions would have you believe is going on. Is, is that his middle name, really? His middle name is Beauregard. That's so first of all, fantastic thou middle shalt name. trust no man whose middle name is Beauregard. I don't know. That's right? a fantastic middle name. That's a, that's a, that is a. Right. Named after Civil War general, all right? It's not, I mean, it's Beauregard. not, uh, it's not uh, Thad McCotter or McCochran, the, my previous favorite name in Congress, but that's a great name. Right. P.T. Beauregard was one of the uh, most brilliant Confederate cavalry generals in the entire Civil War. He single-handedly kept Union armies in Tennessee tied up, but that's neither here nor there. Anyways, what's, what's essentially going on is that there has been a panic about the browning of the American Southwest for the past, oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, Beauregard is, is the leading uh, tip of the spear in this, but there is an entire ideological machinery behind it. There are think tanks like, oh God, what's the name of this place? Let me see if I can, no, I'm not going to be able to pull it up. Uh, it's that wonderful one that's like the Center for Immigration Information or something, and every time you talk about it, you have to say, which is an anti-immigrant uh, coalition. Anyways, okay. um, the panic is essentially a racial panic. Okay, It's, it's the idea that um, because we've, uh, quote unquote, let so many people into the country, the white race is going to be diluted. Um, and any ideological pronouncements made by the parties who are bringing this um, immigration policy online have to be viewed through the lens of historical biological racism. Thinking about it from the perspective of this issue is two sides, right? Both the, the immigration side and also the, the federal supremacy slash states' rights perspective, mm -hmm. right? Is so, this I, a yeah. singular issue? Like, wh what I mean here is, like, we've seen this act before, right? Where cities don't want to enforce certain federal laws. And generally, the, the perspective that the city has to follow this, the, the federal law and the state law isn't mm -hmm. as controversial. Right. Uh, the idea is, well, just because you don't like that law doesn't mean that uh, you get to break it. So why would this particular issue be, be different? And why mm -hmm. would something maybe more mundane like um drinking age which actually was a pretty big fight between right. i think wyoming and the federal government or speed Absolutely. limits like why yeah. why is this particularly different in whether or not states and the cities are are uh, able to tell the the feds to take a hike yeah well so it's, it depends on what kind of or or how the power of the federal government is being read into the constitution right so this is a particularly different case, I would argue, than, for instance, speed limits or the drinking age. For speed limits and the drinking age, um, those are two um, state supremacy debates that happened after you get the Eisenhower interstate system, right? The Eisenhower interstate system has within its name the clause of the Constitution that allows 
the federal government or that eventually was interpreted to allow the federal government the ability to go in and dictate what happens in those states, interstate commerce, right? However, it has been broadly, broadly asserted in the case law that immigration, power over who gets to enter and exit the United States of America and how that entry and exit is managed is a power of the federal government, right? And should remain a power of the federal government. And this actually, if you, if, you, if you drill down and look at this issue, this issue is essentially about money, right? What happens here in this bill, in SB... Um, 697. Oh God, 697, right? Um, is that not only is it allowing, you know, or is it ensuring that you have uniformity of, quote-unquote, immigration policy being enforced throughout the state of Florida, but it's actually empowering city commissioners to turn around and present the federal government with a bill for that enforcement, okay? That's huge. Because the main reason that the city of Miami for a long time until, you know, Jimenez essentially, you know, pulled his Vichy regime move, uh, was not helping out when it came to deporting individuals, right? Was because there was nobody to pay for that. Let me give you an example so you can uh, flesh it out in your mind. For instance, if you have an individual who gets pulled over for speeding and that individual is undocumented, right? And say he gets taken over because, or he gets taken into custody because he was speeding egregiously over the limit. Previous to the policy, right? The United States of America's government was not going to be necessarily informed that that individual was not documented. However, if it was informed that that individual was not documented, then the states, right, were told either you hold that person or no, you can let them go. He has an immigration hold. If that person had an immigration hold, federal immigration officials had to go and pick that dude up from jail. The cost of keeping that dude in jail from the day he gets held to the day that the federal immigration officials were going to pick him up was actually on the city or on the municipality or on the state, depending on whose jail he ended up in. Nobody wanted to bear that cost until Sheriff Joe Arpiaro, Arpiaro, whatever, however you pronounce his name, and Jan Brewer in the state of Arizona passed SB 1070. And that is where you get the beginning of state governments turning around and telling all of their federal municipalities and deputizing their law enforcement to actually enforce immigration policy and allowing for quote unquote illegal aliens to be held in their jails until immigration and law enforcement officials pick them up. Let's take the the opposite approach here, right? Like let's inverse invert the issue just to understand the the philosophical part of this, right? Mm-hmm. What if there were a state, California, since California is or nobody uh, talks about Rhode Island. Rhode Island, does Rhode Island really have a, uh, an immigration problem? It is a border there's a state, of, technically. There's, there's a lot of Dominicans in Rhode Island. Okay, so let's take Rhode Island then. Mm-hmm. If Rhode Island had passed the inverse policy, meaning everybody in the state had to follow the same law, and that law was that the federal government was not allowed to mm-hmm. uh, deputize its local police officers, but... Mm-hmm random town in Rhode Island. I don't know any towns in Rhode Island off the top of my head. Um, Narragansett. Okay. If they decided that they did, 
and they said, no, no, we want to enforce this. Uh, we're, we're choosing. Would mm. your opinion be the same that this, that city should have the right to enforce federal law if they so choose? Actually, it would. But that's because I see a historical line of continuity between policies meant to or whose spirit is the ennoblement and the enablement of individuals having a, a, a decent, honorable, and safe existence in the United States and policies meant to further white supremacy. Now, I know you want to get away from ideology, so I'm going to go towards history, right? Say the town of Nairobi. No, ideology is fine, just not okay. partisanship. We, right, partisan's right. a bad word on this podcast. Okay. All right. So say the town of Narragansett in 1851 had wanted to actually further and enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for your listeners who aren't uh, brushed up on the history, the Fugitive Slave Act was something passed by Congress. Basically Look up allowed, Miller Fillmore's presidency. Exactly. Basically allowed um, individuals to go into the North and capture freed slaves or runaway slaves and bring them back to the South. And at times, uh, involved some of the same issues that we're dealing with today. The deputization of private, local individuals and police forces in the enforcement of this policy. Now, of course, people in the North did not like it. There's actually a riot that breaks out in Boston, much in the same way that there was a huge action uh, last week of individuals actually trying to break into a, an ICE detention center in Boston to free an immigrant um, when people were trying to free uh, a, a, a slave that had been captured using the Fugitive Slave Act. But, you know, hey, Narragansett isn't necessarily a slave port, but it had, say, for instance, in this case, been a slave port. And it was like, no, 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 wait a second. We, we, we like the slavery thing. We've made our living on the slavery thing. Uh, let's Let's do this, right? I would be absolutely in support of the particular policy that would allow the government of Rhode Island to go and say, hey, Narragansett, actually, no, you can't enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, right? And I'm actually making a particular historical line. I am tracing that line between the Fugitive Slave Act and the current policies being taken by the Trump regime. No, but what, I was, what I'm asking, though, is, is the opposite, right? It's what if Rhode Island doesn't want to enforce the act, but... That town, what was the name again? Uh, Narragansett. What, what if they do? And they say, no, no, we want to enforce this. We think the federal government is above you. So we're going to enforce this immigration law. I, I can't think of a case um, where that has happened. Um, oh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it has happened, yeah, but I'm, I, I'm looking I at the possibilities of it. I, I can't think, I mean, that the state government would, would generate any of the kind of political capital necessary to go after the city or municipality. Um, you know, I, I think maybe uh, a similar issue comes up when uh, marijuana laws are, are passed. You know, it's, it's, it's also one of those things where a lot of states have gone a lot farther than the federal government has in the legalization of marijuana. Uh, it's also a, a lot of the states that are much friendlier to immigrants. Um, and when you get this legalization of marijuana, some cities or municipalities may, may not want it. Uh, however, you know, the state doesn't necessarily go after uh, a city for not allowing perhaps the, the zoning of a dispensary. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I don't know in this instance because I can't think of a particular historical or actual example where this has occurred. And I, I don't quite follow. I, I'm, I'm not sure what bearing it would have on the logical argument, if that makes sense. What's the line here for the difference between federal supremacy and states' rights for you? 
is this a line that is brought about by the quote-unquote seriousness of an issue which is a whole nother debate mm-hmm. or or is there is there some sort of of ground what does it have to do with money so so i guess the the question here would mm-hmm. be uh what if a what if a city decided that they wanted to be a sanctuary city which mm-hmm. it occurs to me we haven't defined yet is um, oh. is is yeah. a city that does not seek to enforce federal immigration laws under its own banner like it says you want to enforce right. it it's your problem not ours right ice can come in and enforce all it wants but but the police won't exactly and um, not just the police but the social workers and yes. the sick officials and all of the machinery of local government which is the one generally delivering the most services yes so is it okay then if the city would have the right to say we don't want this uh we're not going to enforce this but the feds say, well, we gave you this money for X, Y, and Z, and now we're not going to give it to you. Mm-hmm. So before we discuss line, I want to discuss which cities are doing this and why they're doing this and, 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 and a broader um, sort of divide that is opening up, uh, not just here in the United States, but in the world, right? And that, the divide is no longer between, uh, as it was before, communism, or capitalism, right? It seems like the great ideological divide of the 21st century is going to be that between closed systems and open systems. And I reference a recent Economist uh, magazine that was discussing this. Okay? Isn't, the, isn't that the same thing? The co- no, capitalism and communism are both, communism, one is communism closed, created, one is open. Mm, no, if, if you think about it, you know, Kazakhstan uh, was sending ore to Russia without tariffs, right? And ideally under, you know, well, but the Kazakhstan was a Soviet, was a Soviet satellite. Right, right, right. But, but Kazakhstan had its own representative parliament and had its own within the Soviet system. Ish, there was, ish. right. I mean, the Soviets still told the them Soviet what to do. System, right. But within the Soviet system, you had free trade. And there's a reason why it's called the international. Okay. Like they weren't setting tariffs on each other. And the free movement of people, quote unquote, free movement of people, or the movement of goods, at least, and services, was supposed to be not necessarily restricted. In practice, it was. The same way that in practice under capitalism it is. But the closed and open distinction here that we're seeing in the 21st century is essentially by those who have been so threatened by a global system that they want to retranch and come back and pull into nationalisms and pull into more closed economies that perhaps spread the benefits of economic production in a very different way than the neoliberal global order that's been dominant for the past 20 or 30 years. Cities pay, play a, a key role in this, uh, specifically the global cities who are the ones that are fighting the most to keep their immigrants around and who want nothing to do with this federal government policy. These global cities, such as San Francisco, such as New York, are places where innovation occurs are drivers of the global economy and they're the ones that benefit the most from openness openness not just to capital but to the movement of services and to the movement of people they want to make sure that as much movement occurs as possible why because that spurs their growth that spurs the growth of their tax bases that spurs the growth of their capital however there is a competing ideology which has recently taken over the federal government And that competing ideology is a closed one, one that begins to question not just the movement of capital between places, but also 
has tied in and fused in with some of the most, I would say, dangerous ideas in American history, right? The idea that we are a closed nation, that we are a nation for just the white race, and that that white race must be defended. And it's now seeking to apply that economic nationalism to the immigration debate. Now, when that line comes, right, what is the line between allowing a city, a global city, to say to a federal government, no, we're not going to follow this rule. Well, I'll tell you what, in, in practice, the city doesn't have much going for it. The federal government has vast powers, it has law on its side, and it's going to be able to enforce that rule most of the time. The federal government has to be very, very, very careful not to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. The cities which it is going after the immigrants that live in those cities, right? These are the areas that contribute the most by an outsized order of magnitude to the gross national product. These are the areas where most of the innovation happens. These are the areas where most of the educated classes, the quote-unquote elite, live. You're going to see in the next 20 to 30 years the great decline of London, perhaps, probably, as a world banking and financial capital, as a a capital of quote-unquote thinking because of new policies that are coming in due to Brexit. The federal government has to be very careful when it starts clamping down on these cities and, and, and their need for open if they should not create the same conditions that are going to lead to London's decline in San Francisco and in, in New York, which are two of the leading cities that have done the sanctuary city policy. So I'm, I'm not going to say that, that you know, there's, there's a, a, a case law or, or some kind of legal fiction that we can come up with here. Um, I'm going to draw a broad, broad brushstroke. The Supreme Court in previous cases has uh, said that if a budget item is less than 1% and the federal government takes it away as a condition of not doing something, then that's mm-hmm. not coercion because it's not that big of a deal, right? You can make that up. Uh, in the first Obamacare, which uh, I believe was a Sibelius case, uh, I will put the correct uh, citation on the podcast episode page. The reason that the court cited against the expansion of Medicaid as a guarantee in all states is because they said that Medicaid took up too much of the budget and it was a potentially coercive act. Mm-hmm. So from both a monetary mm-hmm. and a philosophical meaning issue perspective, where do we draw the line? Because SCOTUS hasn't drawn the line yet. All it has said is that that line right. is somewhere between 1 and 15. Uh, right. And that we don't know if it's 10, 7, 12. We'll see what happens. Uh, but here's, 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 I mean, my, my opinion is, is, is one that, that looks towards the separation of powers. Okay. okay. It is the, and separation of powers, not just at a branch level, but also at a, at a, a government level. You mean right? In okay. in, in in and I, I would argue for for and I would argue passionately in defense of of a kind of federalism where, you know, well, let, let's get back to a separation of powers between the federal, the legislative, and the judicial branches. Okay, first and foremost, if the legislative branch has said that hey, uh, San Francisco is going to get this amount of funding for its bridge, right, for the new bridge across. Uh, from Oakland to San Francisco, and Trump says, no, you can't get that funding because you're a sanctuary city. I don't think Trump should have absolutely any right, I don't think any president should have absolutely any right to mess with that kind of an appropriation, 
because then that is giving him a power reserved to the legislative branch. He then gets to say who gets money and who doesn't get money. And that's not something the executive should be able to do. In historical terms, executives that do that kind of thing generally tend to get their heads cut off. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's 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 where I'm going to draw that line. But what about at the state level? Like, because, I mean, the federal government, a, a lot of a lot of ideologies in our past have believed that the federal government should be supreme on pretty much every issue, whether whatever it is. I mean, Alexander Hamilton, for as much as uh, he is is praised overwhelmingly in our current society and, and for good reason, a lot of times, Alexander yeah, Hamilton just, did not care about the states. He right. thought the federal government should rule all. OK, so 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 I'll, I'll do uh, I'll do uh, I'll, here's here's my brief argument. OK. Um, most of the issues that come to state supremacy over federal law, uh, historically, if you look at it, have had to do with race, right? Uh, if we look at 1832 in North Carolina, we see, was it North or South Carolina? Whatever, one of the two Carolinas. They're both walkers. Um, we see that essentially what the North wanted to do was to keep the South from selling its cotton to Great Britain and getting cheap goods from Great Britain. You think, well, what does that have to do with race? Well, where were they getting that cheap cotton? Who was cotton? picking the cotton? Exactly. Um, so they do these, uh, tariffs and the South says, we're not going to listen to these tariffs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, most of the time when you have one of these issues, it is, it is essentially dealing with the cohesion of the national character. What do we look like as a people? What should we look as, like as a people? Who are we? Right? So this is my answer. When it comes to the supremacy of, uh, a particular local or federal ordinance, uh, in spite of a national ordinance, you have to ask, what is the spirit of this law? What is this law trying to do? All right, You can't just look at it in the vacuum of the legal fiction. You have to ask yourself, okay, this is a law that is allowing an undocumented woman married to a documented person, for instance, from uh, allowing her to go in and declare that she's been the victim of spousal abuse and have recourse to the law. However, if you follow one other policy or if you follow the policy of the federal government, you'll never allow that woman to come into the door because when she does, you have to declare her an undocumented immigrant and she gets deported. Okay. So these are policies that allow cities to keep functioning for the most part and to keep delivering services to a great proportion of their residents. Uh, any, uh, any final thoughts, anything we may have missed? Um, yeah, here's, 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 here's my final thought in the closing minutes. It is a shame um, an absolute shame that, uh, the first city to turn around and tell, uh, the Trump administration that it will no longer be a quote unquote sanctuary city or to claim that it has never been a sanctuary city when it really was, uh, and that it's going to start following this federal directive. The fact that that city is Miami, a city that was put on the map by Cuban refugees and Cuban exiles, and that is a city of immigrants, that is a shame. And I, I think that it's possible to make a very compelling legal case for the supremacy of the federal government in being able to tell a city what to do and for the supremacy of the state government in being able to tell a state what to do. But you should be very careful about who that argument is coming from because it's often going to be coming from individuals who A, may not necessarily care very much for refugees and immigrants themselves or B, refugees and immigrants or the children of refugees and immigrants who may have forgotten where they come from. And that is my closing argument. Next up is Chris Sanchalima with a slightly different take on this controversial issue. My name is Chris Sanchalima. 
and I'm a patent and trademark attorney in Miami, Florida. It's been deemed a sanctuary city in the media, and I'm here to give my views on the subject. We'll first start out with the, the bill that's in front of the legislature, HB 697. And the idea with that bill is that all of the cities in Florida, no matter what size, would have to uniformly follow immigration codes and enforce federal law as if it were a state or a city law. How do you feel about the inner workings of that? And is it a good idea to keep everybody in the state the same way, regardless of the populations of those cities? Well, as an attorney, I always consult the body of laws that we currently have on the books, regardless of population of cities. You know, the, I look at um, uh, the first source of law that I look to is uh, the one that determines the, the correct procedures in, in a particular jurisdiction. So anything that deals with immigration belongs to the federal government as per the Constitution. And, uh, and then I think about uh, the Tenth Amendment, which leaves certain rights to the states that are not enumerated in the Constitution. Um, and I consider immigration to be enumerated in the Constitution and delegated to the federal government. So that leaves the states with police power over non-immigration type issues. And uh, that state law trumps municipal law. Uh, or trumps county laws, and then county laws trump municipal laws, and that's the hierarchy in my mind. So I believe that if there's a state law, it trumps individual city laws, no matter the size of the city. When it comes to the Constitution, we have a very kind of complicated history with who gets to do what, even sometimes when it is enumerated. Thinking about that particular issue, right, and what the federal government and the state government have the right to do, where do cities fall into that? So are cities expected to be just kind of extensions of the state they're from? Are they granted a little bit more independence than that, depending on the state? Um, how, how should we generally expect uh, a city's government to have to act in regards to the state government is telling them you need to do this? Well, cities or municipalities which includes cities and towns, are uh, entities that are incorporated within the boundaries of a particular state. And they get together and decide that they want to pool their resources um, and they want to pay some taxes to beautify or have closer services like police, sewer, trash, firefighters. Some cities contract the county uh, service providers and others have their own, but they all do that, uh, with the understanding that they belong to a particular state. And, um, there's state constitutions that mandate the hierarchy of, uh, the body of laws. Those cities are incorporated within the understanding that they have to respond to, uh, a higher level in the hierarchy. And that's, uh, state law, and then ultimately uh, federal law, and that's 
uh, the way our government functions. Taking a step back from immigration for a second and looking at uh, the idea of this hierarchy overall, there have been complaints for as long as the counties have existed, it seems, about Miami-Dade, Broward, and uh, Palm Beach counties, and, and sometimes Monroe likes to lump itself in there too, of uh, being what's called a donor county. And what that means, for those that don't know, is a county that pays more in taxes to the state than they receive in services. Could you maybe not make an argument for, but at least understand the perspective of a Miami-Dade county or a Broward county or Palm Beach in saying that, listen, we actually are the ones that are footing the bill for a lot of the things the state does, so we should get more autonomy in how we run our territory. Yeah, of course. And and the same interplay is at work within the counties. So there's donor cities within certain counties where uh, a lot of the money that's paid into the county, for instance, people in Pinecrest pay a lot more in property taxes uh, than people in Little Havana. And then you have people in uh, Pinecrest who they don't send their kids to public schools and 80% of property taxes in Miami-Dade County, they go to fund public schools and, you know, the, the, the person in Pinecrest that's spending seven, eight, ten times the amount of property taxes, their child is not receiving any benefit from that. So, you know, to say that Pinecrest gets some more uh, added autonomy uh, within Miami-Dade County, I would think um, it goes against those principles. Uh, what what they're getting is uh, they're getting more. They're 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 entering that situation knowingly. Um, you know, if you live in Pinecrest, you know that you're going to pay more taxes. You may not get. You don't live there because you expect uh, your property taxes to go to the public schools that you're going to send your child and your child's going to benefit. Um, I don't think that it always has to be uh, proportional. That's the way that taxes work. It's kind of like a redistribution of wealth. It's kind of a socialist uh, idea, and that's the idea that we've all accepted. And um, going one level up, I think it applies uh, similarly to the counties, you have donor counties that they may provide more than the rest of the state, but we're aware of that. And, uh, uh, there's, there's states that provide more to the union, um, than for instance, Rhode Island and, uh, you know, no, no state gets a greater say, uh, than Rhode Island. Although, you know, there's the house of representatives that, are based on uh they are based on on population as well and we also have a bicameral system in the state legislature where there's the state senate and uh then there's the state house uh that does take into account the more dense populations in those counties and they they have a greater say uh at the state level so is there in your opinion, uh, a potential line that would be, what's the word I'm looking for here? I'm thinking here of uh, conscientious objectors, objectors, right? Uh, we have a place for them uh, as individuals in, in a certain amount, uh, in a certain capacity legally, but I don't know if we really think of governments that way. 
we we generally think of of governments that are lower on the rung, that are misbehaving less as conscientious objectors and more as just rebels. Is there a potential room there for for some sort of leeway where maybe we could say, okay, on this particular issue or on, on certain things, yes, you do have the leeway to tell the feds or the state to get lost, even if that means maybe a potential loss of revenue somewhere, you still have the right to say, no, 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 we're not going to enforce a law that way. Uh, and I'm thinking here of something like marijuana. Because marijuana is an issue right now that technically is illegal at, at the federal level, and, but several states have legalized it completely. Uh, some states, like Florida, have gone kind of halfway and legalized it for medicinal purposes. However, it continues to be illegal in the United States. And the, the philosophy previously, uh, under the uh, previous administration, was to say, well, if it's legal in states... Uh, then we just won't enforce it in those states. So is, is there a line where it's okay for marijuana but not okay for immigration? Where do we kind of draw that line? Or is that kind of behavior dangerous to the system overall? Yeah, I mean, I think for certain things, it's it's fine. I mean, in, uh, in the Vietnam War, there was conscientious objectors mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, they they didn't, want to fight or they they would uh they didn't want to pick up uh, a weapon because their religion didn't allow them but they would still be medics so yeah to a certain degree it's fine but at the end of the day there there's bigger uh there's something that's bigger than than you and me there's something that's bigger than the individual that's the community and it's I think it's an issue by issue type of um uh type of situation and we have to see that issue how widespread it is because um if having for instance a sanctuary city in Miami is only going to affect Miami, then I think that Miami has more of a it's more justifiable to have that conscientious objection but if that sanctuary city in miami has the potential to spill over to other parts of the country that we're trying to um we're trying to get it to go one way uh as a majority then that's not fair for the rest of the country because now miami's conscientious objection affects other people. So I think it depends on the issue and how uh, widespread it is. I mean, marijuana smoking um, is more limited or can be potentially more limited to a geographic area where the smoking occurs. um, And you can still uh, monitor more easily um, the... Uh, the traveling of marijuana. I mean, mm-hmm. potentially. I mean, it still may In be theory, a problem yeah. if a certain state doesn't want it. You know, and then you've got uh, the the smuggling of marijuana, and then you take that to a personal level, and then you've got people who they kind of infiltrate through Miami, and then Miami becomes, you know, instead of a gateway of drugs, it becomes a gateway of undocumented people that we have no accountability over. So for immigration, I think the reason why the Constitution laid out that it has to be mandated by the federal government 
is because it's an issue that affects the whole country. So for immigration, I, I have a hard time um, accepting the conscientious objection of a particular city. Uh, so if I'm understanding correctly, what you mean is uh, kind of like that old philosophy that the the government's job is to arbitrate the end of my rights and the beginning of yours. Immigration or the people that would be coming to the United States uh, would have long-lasting uh, effects? Is, is Am I understanding what you're saying correctly? Well, it's, it's not so much of uh, long-lasting. It's not the duration. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, how widespread the effects are. Okay. And whether it's an interstate type of effect. And if it's a, it's like the Commerce Clause. Anything that affects interstate commerce is governed by the Commerce Clause and allows the federal government to, to reach. And that could just be between two states, or it could be between a foreign country and, and a state, or it could be between an Indian nation and a state. So anything that affects interstate commerce is subject to the Commerce Clause and the feds can step in. And immigration, it's, it's very easily, um, it could very easily spill over to another state, create interstate, an interstate issue. And um, so it's more of how widespread it is rather than how long lasting it is. Do you think that there are any other particular issues uh, similar to immigration uh, that are ripe for the, the state setting a boundary and saying all cities have to operate this way? Any other glaring uh, concerns that might exist right now? Or is immigration kind of in a class of its own for you? Well, that all cities have to act this way. I, uh, I think that, that, to my mind, nothing really comes up. Maybe something in the educational field. You know, it's, it's very difficult for, instead of, uh, it's very difficult to think of things that the state should mandate. Um, and I don't really see, uh, the state being the one that needs to mandate this. This is something that's coming from the federal government. Uh, that it's, it's not so much of a mandate, it's more of just enforcement of the current laws that exist. And yeah, laws, when they're being broken, force people to go into the other direction so that they're not coloring outside the lines anymore. Uh, but I, I don't see it as like the state, uh, needing to be the body that tells the cities what to do. The cities need to comply uh, with federal laws without the states having to step in and tell them to comply with federal law. It's, it's inherent. So uh, on that on that complying point, the federal government has a lot of different agencies that have policing power. The one that would fall into this category would probably be ICE um, most of the time, but it's possible that another could be tra- uh, brought into a particular immigration issue um, if there was more to the case. The police departments at the state and the local level, to my knowledge, and I may be incorrect on this, don't generally deal with immigration because it is a federal issue. They just they would arrest somebody for something else. Uh, is there room from a legal perspective for a police force to say, well, we're not going to flaunt the federal government and we're not going to tell the federal government that we're not going to enforce your rules. Uh, however, we're going to uh, only arrest people for what is in our jurisdiction and that way kind of sidestep the issue yeah but i think that i mean we're all part of the same community you know we're all part of the same union and 
we all have the same interest in uh in in abiding by federal law uh, i don't think that it's good i don't think it's good practice or good precedent for uh local governments to try to find ways to side skirt uh laws i think that the the right way to do it is if there's an issue they feel strongly about um to uh approach their designated or their elected uh federal representatives and uh, the senator and the represent or the or the state uh or their representative representing them in the house uh in congress and and um and that tell them that they want some change uh and that's the right way to do it but uh you know we live in a country where the majority rules the minorities have rights but one of those rights is not the right to sidestep the law. You know, sidestepping the law, even based on conscientious objection, uh, to me, doesn't hold water in in this particular case because you know immigration is one of those things that uh, you know I don't think that we we can have room for conscientious objection due to uh, its interstate effect. It's going back to my previous point. Bottom line for you. The union is the most important thing. Majority, the most important thing for me is uh, uh, that we live in a society where we're all clear on the rules and that we don't dilute the rules and that we have an organized way of changing the rules that we don't like and that we don't start creating pockets all over the country uh, that destroy the integrity of our rulemaking, of our rule amending, uh, we all need to be rowing together. We all need to be rowing together on this ship. And in the meantime, we have majority rules that we have and minority uh, rights. And we have um, people's religions that can be respected. Uh, people's, you know, differences can be tolerated. Um, but all within... Uh, the body of laws that we've all agreed upon. That's what's most important. Uh, any final thoughts? Any Anything we may have missed? No, I, I think that, you know, your questions uh, were very comprehensive and it covered the the subject pretty well and, you know, very thought-provoking. Um, but ultimately, on this issue of immigration, uh, I tend to um, uh, want to stick to the principles of the Constitution on it, and and uh, and keep it as a federal issue, because uh, I think it works best if we have that global uniformity or that macro uniformity at a at a at a federal level, um, because the country as a whole needs to know who's in the country in every corner of the country, and we can't start creating this precedent of sidestepping. Uh, the laws, um, because we disagree with federal law. We have a procedure in, in place, and um, and and to to date, that's the best procedure we've come up with, and and we'll keep improving it. But um, we don't want to dilute our our rule making and our rule changing because that's just uh, it's not who we are. It's not how we've gotten this far. You know, we need to have tolerance. Um, but at the same time, we need to have 
rules and, and try to live in between both. Thank you to our guests Mario and Chris for coming on and explaining to us not just what a sanctuary city is and what their history is, but what the relationship between the federal government, state government, and local governments is and ought to be, in their opinions. As always, if you're looking for the notes on the episode, make sure to go to blog.voteray.co and you'll be able to see links to a lot of the things that we talked about today, especially court cases and bills from the past. And also don't forget that if you are in Sweetwater, you have an election coming up on Tuesday, May 9th. Head to voteraid.co, that's V-O-T-E-R-A-I-D.co, in order to learn which commission candidates most line up with your viewpoints. There's an election coming up, and there's no excuse to not let your voice be heard. That's voteraid.co, and the Sweetwater election is May 9th. And now, until next time, get excited for the end of the 2017 Florida Legislative Session. <laughs>